passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Podcast. Hell yeah, brother. Overload, brother. Beats by at Smoke M2D6. Welcome to part two of the Seattle Overload Mailbag. This is the defense episode. We're very excited. We also have exciting Seahawks news to start the episode with, and also troubling Seahawks news. Hey. So we're getting right into it now as training camp's kicked off. Uh, I've already been told off by the team, so doing real good. Griffin, Ty, how's it going? Doing a little bit better than you, maybe, considering the uh, a certain call that you received today from yeah. a, certain, a certain team that will remain nameless. Yeah, um, interesting. Uh, but yeah, doing, doing great, doing great. How are you, Griff? Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I mean... A little tone deaf of you guys to ask me that, considering it's hardly been 24 hours since KJ Wright retired. Mm. But uh, besides that, I'm doing fine, I guess. I'm sorry. Um, I know we're all in a state of mourning. It's okay. Well, it's it's 2:30 in the morning, actually. Ooh. Oh wow. You're you're literally in a state of mourning. Right I am. I now, caffeinated. Steve, what do you call that when a word has two different, not two different meanings? Never mind. We're not going there. Two Sorry. different mornings? No, mean? no. Like, oh. it sounds the same, but it's spelled differently. If there's a word for mm-hmm. it. A homophone? Is it a homophone? What did, what did you just call me? Um, no, you're very progressive, Ty, and hmm, not thanks. problematic. Otherwise, you wouldn't be on the podcast. That's true. That's true. Uh, each two of the words are the same pronunciation, but different meanings are spelled. Okay, you're right. Homophone. All right, there we go. Oh, I nailed it. Let's go. Okay, very good. We're off to a good start. Um, Here we go. A level English. Well, what do you guys have at high school? Just SATs. Yeah. GPA. Yeah, just, yeah. SATs yeah. are the tests you take. Okay. Yeah. We have, and then we have like A-levels. you have a. Yeah. Then you have like a GPA, right? Through high school, college, etc. Yeah. Is that like a GPS or? And um, no, no. Definitely, so, uh, I'm related. 
So KJ Wright <laughs> retired. Um, that was kind of expected, given that he said he'd only play for the Seahawks, and it was pretty clear that Seattle's linebacker room had moved on from KJ, as much as yeah. we'd have liked to have seen that, as much as we rated KJ. And honestly, yeah, he's 33 years old, but like his zone coverage wasn't the sort which would have declined with age. Like He was, all, he was never the quickest. He's always one of the smartest, and his smarts would only ever have increased. Uh, right. Yeah, there's definitely room for him on an NFL roster out there. I don't know why he didn't get more offers. but um, And he always should have been looking at more than veteran minimum. But it, it seemed like for the veteran minimum, he wasn't going to play anywhere with Seattle. And like you said, Seattle just there's no room for him. But the guy can still play. Well, the, the thing with a 33-year-old off-ball linebacker as well is they're not going to be able to contribute in special teams, which is an important part of that position. And then KJ can't really rush the pass to the extent that a 33-year-old on-ball or kind of edge linebacker right. would. So you don't actually see that many uh, 33-year-old linebackers for that reason. Um, right. So that that's sucks. But, but, but that season after 2020, where he was outstanding, uh, playing a bit of on-ball as well, really right. the fact he only got what he got from the raiders i mean it's it shows how little the position is valued in the nfl but it, right. it did suck uh but at least he got a, a last hurrah in, in las vegas yeah. yeah yeah he looked good he looked good uh, at times last year as well yeah he was uh, a good player for the raiders yeah uh yeah i mean hell of a player um hell of a career for him um absolute legend seahawks legend gonna be in the ring of honor one day uh loved watching kj Wright play every sunday you know for the last mm. 10 or so years so yeah. it's really sad that he's uh retiring but you know i mean i don't know if you guys watched the uh the video of him uh signing oh. his one day contract yeah. but like oh. you know they, they they did all the research and they were going oh. through like all the games he had played like 230 games and stuff like that that's a lot man that's a lot especially yeah. for a linebacker taking all those hits and everything all those tackles that he's Man, I, I was in my feels a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was in my feels. I was in my feels mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Griff? Uh, I got misty-eyed. Ah, um, yeah. I'm not, some, I'm not someone that's afraid to cry cry often, but this one didn't. It's good to cry. I got I got, mm-hmm. I got, uh, I got misty-eyed for sure. Miss Misty-eyed. Yeah, okay, so should yeah. we do the other bad news? Jamal Adams is uh, – oh, yeah. well, he was he – was, it's funny actually because I was watching eagle eagle eyed hawk eyed much better the training camp uh, day one live stream being a degenerate trying mm-hmm. to glean primarily defensive scheme from it mm-hmm. and where was Jamal Adams he was on the sideline and Ryan Neal was taking a heck of a lot of snaps and I was like eh, I guess Adams is uh, had a tweak or is uh, maybe slightly not quite right or, or just trying to get reps for Neal but then he was not at day two of training camp yeah i think i mean at, at least okay let's start let's we'll start with silver linings it's nothing lower body related it's not the shoulder uh-huh. and so obviously Isn't the shoulder upper, upper body yeah it's not lower body it's not shoulder those statements that. don't conflict do they sorry there's a comma yeah okay uh-huh. um so it's the hand thing yeah it's weird because obviously he made a big deal about how it's fully well it's fully functional now for what it can be because he said he still can't make a he can't make a complete fist because his fingers are permanently bent. Um, but he said he's felt good to go, but it's not encouraging that the f- second day or first day of camp, 
something isn't feeling right and what can that mean did he do something to it or does it is he just wondering if what he's feeling is supposed to feel that way is it mm -hmm. mental is he adapting to it obviously nothing came up during mini camp and i think he was full go for that in OTAs, so what is happening? Is it when he's making tackles now that there's a little more contact allowed, um, or at least during tackling drills and stuff? So what what what's happening here? Did he sl slam it on something? So I don't know. I, I don't I don't like the sound of it, but I'm gonna remain optimistic and just wait and see with this because what else can you do? It's still well, very early in camp. Yeah, like you said, Griff. At least it's not a leg thing. At least it's not something with his shoulder you know sp specifically the one that he just had surgery on obviously at least it's none of those things right it's the hand which i mean guys can play through hand things even yeah. defensive back sometimes so uh you know we'll, is, we'll see it's weird how he uh brought it up earlier this off season and i mean the fact he brought it up the reporters didn't ask him about it you know that suggests that he was you know, it's weighing on his mind. He's, I mean, you would, it would if you can't bend your fingers like you used to, and they got fused. I don't yeah. really know what you can do though from now. Maybe like someone in my mentions was saying about maybe having someone massage it, like to get some comfort there. I don't, I don't know. Um, it must have just been, you know, sh shocking and shedding on a, on a dummy or something or, or maybe a ball pings off it at a weird angle. I always seem to hurt my fingers when trying to catch footballs, which maybe that is a, a lack of gloves or maybe a lack of soft hands. But uh, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully Jamal is um, able to get comfortable soon because this is his third off-season now, the third with the Seahawks and the third off-season for him where he has been truncated because first two years, COVID made it weird. Everyone's been speaking about that at the moment. Jordan Brooks mentioned it today. And now with Adams missing because of his hand, he's he's gonna hopefully get back soon. But if not, you know that lack of chemistry in the in the secondary with with the new coverages. Well, they're not new, but new language at least, and mm -hmm. all that kind of deal. He, he needs to be there. Uh, so that sucks. Right. Yeah, it's frustrating, but I don't think we need to panic yet. It's just yeah. too early, and I think it's too minor ultimately. Yeah, like when so, is the first preseason game? Like two and a half weeks from now two weeks now? yeah yeah so and he's probably not a seeing a lot of action in that anyway so yeah august yeah, we'll 13th see. i think or i'm, I'm confused though because it's at midnight so it might be august 12th but for me it's august 13th anyway so the good news dk metcalf decalen hmm. great great decalen zacarius absolutely astonishingly good name he mm -hmm signed his deal finally so he set out the first well held in the first two uh, training camp games and he's been signed to a, a pr uh, in my opinion it's a pretty good deal what, yeah what are, your, what are your thoughts yeah it yeah. seems like they oh go ahead ty oh no no, no. you go ahead I, I was just gonna well real quick i was just gonna say that i think it's a it's kind of a win-win for for both sides yeah. Yes. Um, but I'll explain in a second, Griff. You you go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's. I thought maybe the APY could have been higher. The 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 per year could have been higher, but it seems like there's a compromise on keeping that just below a certain mark from Seattle's perspective and compromising with the higher um, signing bonus. But it also sounds like that was connected to a capitulation on the year two guarantees. 
tired yeah, so, is that where you're th- going with that well you're connected but just real quick t- before ty jumps in three years 72 million dollars with 30 million dollars signing bonus so that's a high hmm. amount of guarantees for a receiver yeah, yeah. The, uh, the what are the guarantees aren't they like the most for a receiver ever or something yeah. I, I think i read something like that yeah so um yeah i thought the apy would be higher uh, frankly, just considering what the likes of Devonte, Tyreek, et cetera, got uh, this offseason and considering like obviously DK is not on their level, but he's younger and he's kind of on that trajectory or at least yeah, he and his agent sure. could have made that argument. Um, so, yeah, so I was a little surprised that it came in at 24 per. Uh, but I think this is a, you know, obviously for that reason, that's a great deal for the for the Seahawks, all things considered, when you look at the rest of the market. I think it's also, you know, in general, just a, a really good deal for DK as well, because he's going to get back to free agency at the age of 27. Yeah, it's going to be right in the middle of his prime, like still like, yeah, so he's going to get paid again, like barring anything, you know, crazy or unforeseen that happens in the next couple of years, like he's going to get broken off again. And at that point, the cap is going to be even higher. So what is he even going to make at that point? Like, right. A ton. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So when, when, and it goes without saying, but. You know, they've obviously they have him for the next four years. Seattle was intent on bringing him back, well, extending him, not bringing him back. Um, all off season, that was some messaging. So it's it's abundantly evident that this was a they had identified him as a pillar, mm. a core player on their team, and um, which I mean anyone would, but it's just cool to see like they're they're rallying around there the guys that they think are the most talented and important pieces moving forward. So it's just nice, nice to get that squared away. Yeah. So. Cu- culturally as well, like as well as a pillar, you know, um, I think Ty, when you mentioned, you know, you wondering if it was a bit higher, the reference point really is that Terry McLaurin three year, yeah. $71 million deal. Like, and, and compared to McLaurin, they're both in similar situations in that both teams don't have really a long-term quarterback answer perhaps sorry Griff, don't get too upset there uh and so you know it gives as well as giving them a chance an extra payday it gives them a chance maybe to not be on a bad offense work with a good quarterback again that being said the chemistry dk showed with geno smith was exciting so right uh, yeah the, the usage will be interesting to see i mean results will be what they are but the the usage changes will be well, right right now, I think McLaurin's probably a more rounded and and probably better receiver. I don't know. That's that's a tough one because of Metcalf's athletic. Like it's it's hard but... it's hard to quantify better, but I think more well rounded, more polished, at least more versatile makes it. Yeah. Makes yes, the, but the like, Seattle too, has Lockett, so yeah. The issue too that kind of like separates those guys, at least in terms of like. Well, and I get, I guess they ended up signing pretty similar deals. But when you're just kind of talking about like those guys are stacking them up against one another, it's like, well, DK has like the star power on top of everything. Like, yeah, everyone yeah. knows DK Metcalf. Like, I, I think we all understand that here. Like, Terry McLaurin, though, kind of falls under the radar. Right. Unfortunately, he's an incredible receiver. It's just, right. DK right. just has that kind of like extra like marketability on top of everything else. Yeah. It makes the organization more money. That's, that, right, that, that's, that's a good point that's yeah. a, they needed that right they really needed that because who else is there on the roster who's young and and could be like mm. a legit superstar and that's the thing as well well Jordan dk Brett. can dk can be like crazy good if, if he kind of 
Oh, by the way, real quick, we got confirmation oh, that Jordan yes. Brooks is playing the uh, playing the mic. Would you guess playing about middle that? linebacker? That that was they they were kind of going back and forth on that all through the off season, like kind of implying it, but then implying the reverse. So now this is as all of the training here. camp clips I've seen of him have been him at will, like what we'd call will. So mm. <laughs> weird. Uh, so uh, that's yeah. so weird. Um, <laughs> I but. And I also, mean, he's Mike in the fact that he calls the plays. So okay, mm-hmm. we should reiterate though. Again, terminology might be different now, but what? what I mean, again, Seattle already was a three-four structured team last year and the year before, but it was a little different last year than it was in 2020. But then, even from there, like the the, the Mike and Will spots already are inside linebacker positions, so him. If him moving, like what I'm saying is they're calling both spots inside linebacker. Clint Hurt used that language, but to say Mike and Will still works, it's they're they're just synonyms, really. Um, so like nothing actually changes. Like Will isn't, Will isn't outside unless it's a specific front where you're on the line of scrimmage. Like they're both off ball inside players. They'll so. both be, yeah, off ball inside. The, the predominantly one of them will fit the A gap most of the time and then. One of them will fit the C gap most of the time. Right. All right. Are we ready to get into questions? Yeah. Give us some. Give us your your sack. All right. Let's your mailbag. Yes. Let me whip out my sack here. Mm-hmm. Take out some questions. Uh, this one comes from our good buddy Shiv. Shiv Ramdis. Now with camp like a week away. Looking at the lines around the division and conference as a fan, why should I be optimistic? Excuse me, that this year's iteration of low budget pass rush without big names and many hands make light work philosophy will be significantly more successful than 2019 through 2021, especially when my big coaching additions are secondary guys, not like Clint Hurt. The DC will have more time for the pass rush than he did as a defensive line coach, right? Tell me I'm wrong, please. Maddie, you want to start? Not really, because I'm not really sure how I can tell him he's wrong necessarily. What I'd say is the optimism is that Daryl Taylor can be as good as he wants to be, which is something I said before uh, Clint Hurt ended up saying the exact same thing. So, ha. Um, yeah, I think ta- Taylor's ceiling is crazy good. Like, like legit, like, I don't know. Gr- Griff can speak more to that, but, m- like, top five dude. Like, I don't know how you want to measure that. Um but he just has the otherworldly traits. So, yeah. I mean, I guess he's the big name. But in terms of the rest of the 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 D-line, uh, I mean, uh, it's a bit, like, underwhelming. Nwosu seems to be having a great camp, like, after two days, that is. But he's right. flashing. Um, and, like, you know, if, ta- if Taylor's as good as I think he can be and he continues improving in what is basically his second season, even though he's a third-year player, then, you know, that requires attention that may take the load off, or not even take the load off, but create opportunities for Nwosu. But Griffin... Yeah, wait, r- r- real quick, I'm gonna we're going to interrupt your current programming to offer you this Mariners update. Ty, are you, are you watching the Mariners game right now? Uh, I, have like, I have, like, game day on. Ty France just hit the longest media single I've ever seen in my life. It bounced off the top of the wall, and I thought it was a home run, and I was confused why uh, the was, left. 
was it I was off confused why the left fielder like threw it as fast as he could to second base because I thought that cleared the fence. I thought your uh, reaction was based off uh, Taylor not being a top every five every Ty France like, what? I played appearance is a gift. Okay, anyway, yes. um, absolutely, yes. Um, anyway, this is a Seahawks podcast. Um, Gums. All right, so Maddie, did you leave me with a question? I don't remember because I rudely interrupted you. Sorry, American. I was just saying I think Taylor can be that big name guy. Yeah. Um, but oh, and also I'll just address what Shiv said because Griff's is stalling. Um, Shiv also asked about you know her being DC not having time to coach the DL. Well, that is true, but it's also not like coaching staffs. Like, what do you think the DC does when uh, when they're in Indies? Like, he goes and coaches his position, so yeah. he he doesn't just sit there doing nothing. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure Hurt will be quite hands-on. He likes to be hands-on. Uh, I'd also say Aaron Curry is coaching the Edge group last year, um, and there's continuation there. And I'd add that Clint Hurt, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he tried, but the pass rush coaching, the pass rush coaching clearly didn't quite transition last year because they kind of weren't very good other than well, Dunlap having some popping. But that's not really Hurt's fault. They just didn't quite have the talent. Yeah, And I think the talent this year is more suited to whatever scheme they want to run in, to the scheme they want to run this year than it was last year. They tried, I think last year, what really hurt them was Olden Smith um, uh, being cut, not working out because he would have been that extra three, four, three, four outside linebacker type that they needed. And then when he went, then they were trying to put an Olsen Robinson there. Think about it. Now you've got Taylor legit pass rusher, you got Nwosu, who's a, who's more of a three-four type, more than Mayowa was, even though Mayowa started his career as that kind of type. Um, and then you've got Tyreek Smith, who can do a bit of that, um, and and you've got Mafe, who is supremely athletic, even and hand-eye kind of dude, even though he's not really there yet and isn't the most bendy. But they've got just more more cats with the big name being Taylor, is my prediction. Right. Yeah, the the way Shiv phrases this as this year's iteration, like that's we have to contextualize their rostering approach because he's right. Every year ever since after the 2017 season, they've gone into the next they've gone into the following year with seemingly being undermanned. Um obviously in 2018 uh, on along the D-line pass rush wise that is 2018 obviously they went into the season having lost Averill to a career-ending injury. They traded away Michael Bennett, and then they drafted Rasheem Green, who was only who was always ever going to be a project and a, and a young guy too. So you weren't expecting a whole lot year one. And then Frank Clark was a question mark. It was can he carry a pass rush carrier? Can he at least be a number one guy? And that that was a question that wasn't really answered till a month into the season. Um, he was just so raw still, and, and you could say still is to this day. And then Jaron Reed had a career year which he has not repeated so they kind of made out all right 2018 but there was no reason to go into that year with any confidence uh for the passers then 2019 obviously they they lose clark i think they make a good football decision in isolation they trade him they don't have to pay him that contract and stuff but then they replace him with uh with Jadavion Clowney, who overall is probably an equivalent player but as a pass rusher not as good as clark and then even further when you tr also trade away Jacob Martin and Clowney's the only legit edge that you have, he's styled such that he can't 
create his own width. He needs other guys to create space for him. So it's it's like even if even if Clowney was a a identical pass rusher to to Clark, if you could only have one when everyone else say all things equal, you would rather have Clowney or you'd rather have Clark if you don't have a lot of talent. Whereas if you do have a lot of talent surrounding him, maybe you opt for Clowney. So style matters there. So obviously 2019, they just did not have enough juice up front. They go into 2020, they kind of make those those small ball signings. They bring in Bruce Irvin. He gets hurt. They draft Daryl Taylor. He can't play his rookie year. And they bring in Benson Mayo, who I actually thought was exactly who they signed um, in 2020, uh, especially toward the second half of the season. But, but yeah, point being is that they make these moves and um, – and they're not quite getting the output that maybe they could. And that the output that they're going for isn't anything crazy, but they it still theoretically could be enough um, to to bring like return on, on investment, essentially. So, yeah, then they make the, the trade for Carlos Dunlap. And it's like, OK, between Dunlap and Mayoa, uh, that's if, if that can provide what that provided in the back half of 2020, then you think. You're only adding to that with Daryl Taylor. Then obviously in 2021, Dunlap regresses until like the last month of the season. Mayoa regresses, part of its scheme related. Um, and then Taylor comes on strong, but it's like Taylor's just replacing what you lost with Dunlap. So um, now again, we saw what the passers looked like this past season, the last five, six weeks or so when Dunlap started to look like himself again and you had Taylor firing off the edge. So it's like, okay, and that had a that correlated with results in other areas of the field that was essentially giving you what you want out of your pass rush. It's just, can they get that for a full season? So to answer Shiv's question, the reason why you're hopeful this year, and again, it's all relative to to expectation and plausible expect or realistic expectation, is you're replacing you're replacing Dunlap's production with Inwosu. And theoretically, and Wosu being younger and having a clean bill of health recently and being a model of consistency for the type of player that he is, you're essentially able to ensure Dunlap's production for an entire 17, um, for an entire stretch of the season, for all 17 games. Then you also have Taylor essentially going from year one to year two in development. And then, and then, yeah, you've got Boyamafe. So they've, they, I think, have at minimum ensured the floor doesn't drop. And then they've also done things to where you have some room for the pendulum to swing toward the positive um, in your ceiling with the, with the Mafe, with the Mafe draft pick. So um, there's, I think that there is legit reason to be, um, not even cautiously optimistic. I think you should be able to be relatively firm that they're, they've they've rostered a f- pass rush floor that can help them. It's not going to be their best unit, but it really, it all it needs to be is just enough. And I think that we don't have any question about it being just enough now. It's just how much better can that can they be? Because that margin could mean the difference between that improvement in pass rush going from floor to ceiling could mean the difference between being, hey, a 10 to 15 unit to maybe cracking the top 10 in terms of measures that everyone agrees that would make them top 10, like efficiency, not just points per drive points per game, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's my spiel. I, uh, I think there's reason for optimism. So in ways that maybe wasn't there before. 
So we have another question about the pass rush, uh, which I think kind of this whole thing leads perfectly into uh, from Hawkstrologer at Hawkstrologer on Twitter. If the Taylor Nuosu Mafe pass rush trio proves successful this year, what would their combined stats look like? I'll start with you, Griff. Um, I think Taylor is going to be a seven to 10 sack guy. Um, if we're just talking sacks, I think Nwosu is going to perform as career average, which is anywhere between like four and seven. And then Mafe, I mean, I truly have no idea. I, I would put the over under at three, honestly, but that doesn't mean that he won't be good. He could get you a lot of pressure. It's just sacks are so fluky especially right. for rookies. So I, I wouldn't, I would think, I wouldn't think any more than 25 bef- between the three of them and, and maybe 18 to 20 being the floor. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So like an interesting comparison is the Rams. So the Rams were third in team sacks last year with uh, 50. Um, and that was made up of 12.5 from Aaron Donald, which obviously Seattle doesn't have an Aaron Donald, but having an, an interior pass rush is, kind of the way to get more sacks and who that is on seattle well i think quinton jefferson's better suited to the like pass rushing three tech role than kerry Hyder was i also actually think you know shelby harris is too so yeah i mean and that leads into another question but but the the the, but 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 if we just talk about the rams edge group uh leonard floyd had 9.5 sacks and von miller had 9.5 sacks um and uh, Lewis had three sacks off the edge as well. So, and Holland had two sacks off the edge. But really, Aaron Donald creates a lot of those um, opportunities. And they also had uh, Greg Gaines in the middle uh, providing 4.5 sacks. So I'm, I think I'd yeah. say Seattle success, like I'd consider top 10 sack total a successful thing. I mean, sack total is not the best metric, right? Right. Um, so pressure is. Or well, pressure is one of them at least. Yeah, and and I, I yeah, I didn't even address the interior guys with uh, Shiv's question, but they've they've got three guys from the interior that have a pulse rushing the passer. And last year, I'd say they only had one. And even though, and that would be Puna, even though Rasheem Green was getting his sack production, his pressure rate was really low. I mean, his sacks were kind of fluky. Even though it was always a rooting for him to kind of hit flip that switch and and kind of finally evolve into his final form it just wasn't happening quentin jefferson is significantly better than rashim uh puna ford i mean he still gives you something but we're also waiting to see can he hit another level but i think shelby harris is he's a significant contributor um he's an actual interior pass rusher i mean he ranked i think top 10 among interior defensive linemen and pressure rate at least according to sports info solution um like he was like right at 10th but he's he's a legit guy. I mean, he can speed rip. He can bull rush you. He's just one of those classic style three techs. And and another aspect of this to to Shiv's question, we might see we might see the pass rush um, further, like its potential further tapped into in ways that last year's potential wasn't able to be tapped into because they have the corners to allow them to play the coverages that allow them to play even fronts, and those even fronts provide better spacing. I think, uh, Maddie, you looked at some numbers like their first, their first, and or I think their early down numbers when they were in even fronts last year, their pressure rate was actually above average. 
It's just they couldn't mm-hmm. spend that much time in those fronts because they didn't have the slot corner to play a bunch of man coverage. Um, that was the issue. So the, what the downstream effect of having Justin Coleman is that you can play the fronts that will allow Daryl Taylor and Nwosu to tee off together and frequently on the tackles. And then as you're doing that, that allows the, the interior to work their games and stuff. So there's... Um, there's there there's a there's a positive domino effect that hopefully we see take hold um last year it's just the the team they were just missing skill set archetypes in the right spots to prevent Mm. some of their guys from being accentuated for the scheme they're trying to run so i don't think they'll have that issue this year yeah and just to the point about interior pass rush again so 10th in intact total was the was the uh was the Titans and the Browns. Well, the Browns are a poor example because uh, Miles Garrett had 16 of those sacks. He's a unicorn. But the, the Titans, right? Landry had 12 sacks, so off the edge. Then Autry had nine sacks and Simmons had 8.5 sacks, both off the interior. Um, which again, like if you have those in- interior rushes, they're really the most likely to get the cleanup sacks. Think about when Jaron Reed had his high sacks total. Like mm-hmm. that was complemented by good edge work, but also some of it was just good cleaning up from Reed. So right, I mean well, the stuff Griffin Martin. speaks about yeah. is big. Yeah. So yeah, they actually have they actually they don't just have the the talent. Um, you, you you're not just isolating talent and saying okay, well they got guys. They also have the the skill set composition, like you're saying, they've got edge burners, they've got speed interior rushers and they have power interior rushers so the skill set distribution also it's kind of getting you toward the concept of greater than the sum of your parts too like they're they're not just it's it's there's chemistry potential there so Mm -hmm. so last year um taylor had 36 pressures nuosu had 40 obviously we don't know what mafe is going to do but i mean considering like Taylor seems to be on the trajectory up. Wosu seems to be on the trajectory up. Is it like out of the realm of possibility that those three guys, if we say Mafe gets like 20 to 25 pressures as a rookie, is it crazy to say that they could combine for like 120, 125? On the, that's probably their max ceiling, I would think. Yeah, I think I think it's the ceiling. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, it depends on how many snaps Mafe gets. Obviously, right? Right. Um, he'll feature the most in those nickel packages. I don't know if if he'll be in there and bear, and he won't get a lot of early down opportunities. But also, that just allows him to develop as a pass rusher, which will have bigger implications for year two. So that when he is playing on early downs, and maybe he beefs up a little bit, or he's better suited to defend the run. When he does get those early down base opportunities to rush the passer, he's more ready for it. So, yeah, we'll see there. But also, this isn't to completely dismiss Alton Robinson. Um, he still has something there, but uh, we'll 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 see, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, Rusty Cole asks: uh, Do you predict the Seahawks will continue to play bare fronts or a different three-four front? Also, what are your two favorite types of bears? So we'll we'll answer the first question first. Um, do you predict that they will uh, play bare fronts or a, or a different three-four front, Maddie? 
Um, well, it will predominantly be what we'd consider a bear front, but um, in base, right? Like the other three, four front is the under, but with how like spread out stuff is and how perimeter it is, the unders basically become the bear, like and variations of it, which you'd consider bear rather like there's if you think about under and bear, unders just like bear is just shifted over under basically so um and then like i mean i it depends what you consider a three four front but like there's only the, so many ways the, to do it the the classic three four two gapping true two gapping odd front where you five got, tech well even if i mean straight up head up four tech well i mean some depending on alignment charts mm -hmm. it's five tech. but like like you said you've got the 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 ends are head up over the offensive tackle two gapping the the b and c gap and then you got the two gapping nose tackle like th those days are gone like even all the all the fangio teams that right now they're running bare like the under or weak eagle whatever you call it adjustment where you've got one three and one four i or whatever and of course seattle also likes the four i and the true four right as part of that but the other guys in a three technique um but then uh, where it gets interesting, though, is and some teams are running like true tight. But what but what defines that, though, is not so much the alignments up front, but it's like the personnel package that you marry it with. Right. So as far as front multiplicity goes, I think what might be interesting this year in terms of changes is is, again, what how many DBs are matching it with and, and how many linebackers So like the three, three, five. Are they going to have? Are they going to have that Sam cover down, you know, and essentially be an overhang and kind of be out of the the line of scrimmage element, the front element part? Um, I think we'll see that in the pinch. Uh, Seattle has run like nickel bear before, which I think is essentially, you know, is that the penny package for Fancho? I'm, I'm forgetting. Three three that. five is penny, but it's like right. five one five, you know. Right, right. But like the difference, Seattle, though, is they've put their true off ball weak side linebacker at that second spot. And granted, when that's been KJ and KJ, that translates directly when he used to be an on ball Sam when they're four, four down stuff. So now that skill set, the alignments might be similar enough, but the skill set is being replaced by a pass rusher now. Mm -hmm. So that allows them to keep up the pretense of, hey, either guy could be the rusher in terms of how they're attacking protections and stuff allows them to be a little bit more versatile with their with their fire zones and, and everything right um what what i'd also say as well is if you are wanting to play too high uh, and keep a too high presentation but there's a slot to to be able to cover down there may be instances where you need the outside linebacker to walk out to that slot and therefore up front you may have slightly different adjustments so something like uh nate ties is tweeting out jets clips right um of mm -hmm. the, the rex days they'd play and and aranda does this they'd play like a five tech um so outside shoulder of the tackle to set the edge on that side uh he'd bump out to that and then a zero tech and then a four eye and then a down at down at lunch commit edge and uh also you know kyle scott comes from the saban world where they they have mint which is um you know, you'd consider it like a, a different three, four variant. Um, but r realistically, it won't look that much different unless you're really paying attention. Right. And um, like the techniques up front, we're going to see more like quasi two gapping, like the classic two gap, one gap stuff or more um, four eye play. Right. 
Um, and and like that four eye is so important. Like like the question, well, why go from three tech to four eye for Seattle? At least how they've done it historically in recent years. Historically, recently, that's oxymoronic or um, paradoxical, um, or just moronic. Yeah, mm. um, but they like to put the four eye to the side the tight ends on because you've got that that D gap has been formed now. The C gap and D gap, and and that's especially when teams go under center, they like to run gap stuff to that to that tight end side because the that tight end has a free release if, if there's no end to block against an odd front because the that end is in the b gap a b gap player that tight end is just a free release to the second level and can pick off a linebacker so seattle likes to put even granted he's still a b gap player um just literally being closer to that tight end especially when it's al woods al woods in a four versus versus a three tech that extra couple of feet allows him to kind of scrape over or or cross face on the cross face on the tackle or simply just be so large that it forces the tight end to come down on him as well down block on him and makes it easier for the second level to mix up happen so we'll, we'll just kind of see i think we're going to see base bear stuff just with the usual adjustments they're in um, but nickel is what we'll what we'll look for in terms of you know how interesting the things get but to go like one step further Again, it's not going to be fronts. It's going to be how personnel is distributed. So I think keeping Shelby Harris weak as often as possible so that when it is pass, he's getting that one-on-one. He's opposite the tight end. That means it's just him on the guard. And if they're leaving him one-on-one and he starts getting enough production, well, great. But if he's getting so much production to cause problems, they start sliding weak frequently enough or, or dictating the protection that's where, again, you can bring in your five-man pressures, um, and that's where you start to break the protection. If, if you can force them to protect one way often enough, he becomes that pivot point, and, or he becomes the anchor from which you can pivot off of, and that's with you know sending Taylor, sending the linebackers, sending the safety, depending what the rotation is, et cetera. So, the other thing um, to consider uh, there is if you're playing like base bear, who is the, the end... The, the like the three technique away from the the edge rusher who you want to rush the passer becomes important because then if you get True. empty then that three technique needs to bump outside to play at defensive end um and the 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 guy down at the line of scrimmage can then cover down on on the empty the third receiver or the, the the extra receiver they've created by going empty, basically. Uh, now, that's, sometimes they'll just stick in bare, but also there's times where rushing from a forefront versus empties advantageous. So, ha- having Mafe and Taylor and their kind of ability to drop skill set that helps with that. Yeah. There also won't be that many snaps where they are playing based to like empty looks, but there, there will be the odd occasion. The, like the 49ers love to come out in 21 and 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 then spread you out like that. Right. And we saw so much of that against Seattle last year, especially I think they did it to Seattle more than they did other teams because they didn't respect their four men rush with odd spacing. So mm-hmm. Taylor being in there, having skill sets where you can just constantly rotate in Shelby Harris and even Quentin Jefferson as Puna Ford, like you've got something there that you didn't have last year in base. And, um, who, and who's the most who's the most edge like of the interior dudes? most edge like well probably like in terms of like if you had to put them out on the if edge they're having to edge. bump into a four-man spacing from the bear look probably jefferson right yeah 
I think so. Because yeah, he's like 290. I mean, yeah. so is Puna, but Puna's got a density to him that maybe you yeah, just right Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Don't so. Him that, oh, and then we've got the. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. What are our, what are our two favorite types of bears, Griff? All right. So I'm going to go historical Dude. a little bit. Mm-hmm. We have. So there's the. I think they're called the cave bears. They were, I think, I think native to like North America and like Siberia, but they're just like just these ginormous monsters that I think um, hunter gatherers like hunted to extinction, like as, as recently as like 15,000 years ago. But these things were like bigger than Kodiaks, like I think a full two feet taller than them standing up, like just mammoth. So those guys are cool just by account of being the biggest bear that's ever existed on planet Earth. Then the next coolest bear, I mean, so there are like different subspecies of black bears all over the planet, right? I think we've, um, I think like this is the sun bear, like a Mm. derivation. I don't know. But those guys, they're so, I mean, they will hurt you. Don't approach one if they feel threatened. But they're docile and just like, they're like just like pansies and they run away from you if they see you, but they're just kind of doing their thing. Like they're these big like beasts, but they don't act like it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen panda eat eat stuff. It's like adorable and maybe panda. Um, that was going to be my bear? choice. I was gonna, I was going to go pan. I was going to go panda and sun. Panda's not a bear, surely not. It yeah, it is. Yeah, but oh, the, so, panda's so a great z- choice. Zoologists and like conservationists drive themselves crazy though with pandas, right? Be- because they won't, they like won't do what's best for themselves. Like they're failing the Darwin test like every year. Like they refuse to mate. They refuse to eat things that are healthier for right. them. They they just want to like it's like they're in their retirement stage and they're just sleepy boys enjoying themselves. Um. Yeah, I don't know. How about you guys? Your favorite bears? Well, like I uh, said, panda and sun bear was was my, okay. That's my vote. That's my choice, Maddie. Okay, so the cinnamon bear looks really cool. I've never like, heard of the very, cinnamon bear. Nor had I, but very nice color. Um, and then Paddington bear. Mm. Great, wow. fo- great bear. Oh, is the cinnamon yeah. bear real? Yeah. No. The, the the Paddington bear is yeah yeah I'm I'm changing my from, pick uh, to to Pooh bear. Pooh no bear. no Paddington would like, he owns Pooh trust me like, he <laughs> oh, comes from yeah. darkest Peru he mm. eats marmalade sandwiches like mm. Paddington knows what's up. So if I saw the cinnamon bear in nature, I would have thought I'm looking at a grizzly or a brown bear or something. Mm. But apparently it's just a black bear that just has like a just like a red hair different pigment. Maddie, Maddie, do you eat marmalade sandwiches? Is that like no? And marmalade's trash. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's garbage. I don't get people who eat that shit. You'll eat marmite and, and vegemite. No, I eat marmite. Um, orange peel is not good. Like you eat, you eat marmite. Yeah, marmite's good. Yeah, marmite's really good. Uh, Have you well, had it? Yeah. No, no. Oh, you'd love it. Maybe. Oh, okay. What does it taste like? (laughs) Uh, That is a hard question. Like malty, uh, salty, Mm. umami. Mm. um, Put that on toast with loads of butter. That actually sounds good. Wait, 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 wait. And butter? Those textures don't, they're not like having a fist bite in your mouth. What are you talking about, bro? You said butter and 
the butter marmite. melts, the marmite is spreadable. Like, what are you thinking it is? Some treacle sort of thing. Okay. I guess the texture, is the, the texture similar to jelly? No. Or it's, it looks it looks gelatinous. It's like thicker honey. Jesus. The texture-wise, chill. It's not actually okay. honey. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I guess, like, I you put jelly on toast sometimes? I put jam on toast. Jam. Okay. Confiture. Jelly jam. I actually, I say jam more than jelly. What do you guys really? call preserves over there? Uh, well, preserves are a thing, but jam. Okay, you guys oh. just don't. You guys just don't do jelly. That's like an American abomination. We do jelly, but it's not. Is is it an import? An American import? No, no, no. We do jelly like uh, wibble wobble wibble wobble jelly on a plate. See, we have this disgusting <laughs> stuff, and only Smuckers sells it. It's like the fakest stuff you can imagine. It's just like classic grape jelly, and yeah, mm, yeah, disgusting. I, I, but yeah. it's like a delicacy, you know, under the age of ten. Mm. As soon as you're older than that, it's just you're going for the you're going for the stuff that only you can find at Trader Joe's, is what I'm saying. Word. No. The organic. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> All right. So I we got a couple more defensive line questions. Uh and then I think we're getting into some secondary stuff after that. So finally. Uh can you rate uh, this comes from Scott Myers, Scott V. Myers. Uh, can you rank the interior pass rushers? Griff? No. Shelby, Quentin, Puna. Uh, Al Woods has a bull rush that you can't sleep on. Mm-hmm. It pops every so often. And then, uh, oh, shoot. You know, I'm going to go. I'm going to put Miles Adams ahead of Al Woods. And then, Ooh, spicy. And then, uh, and then I'll go LJ just because he's still technically that's still his domain more than it is for Al Woods. And then I'll oh, go. Oh yeah, Mo. LJ just got smacked around there. I'm still rooting for LJ, but hey. So the current Mariners game is a oh. test of how many balls can you hit to the warning track and not hit a home run. Okay, that sounds it's, so bad. I'm so sorry for you, Jack. Jared Hewitt is uh, is above Matt Gotel. Just I agree with Chris ranking. Other than I'd have Miles Adams ahead of Collier. That's so disrespectful. Um, Miles yeah. Adams might be, but I mean I don't know if I believe that. Anyway, me and Griffin are aligned on that. So okay, Got let's it. go. Got it. I'll I'll agree. I'll agree. Just to save time. Um, all right. So. This comes from Scooby Slips at Scooby Slips. Do you With, think? By the way, they have like the the best. Uh, you know the is it the Twitter username? Like their ass, all right, but their yeah. their Twitter username is very good. What is their Twitter username right now? I'm gonna go look real quick. We're gonna do some investigating right now. Ah, yes. Yes, very nice, very nice. All right, so do you think the Seahawks have a big end on the roster that can two-gap from a four in their weak-slash-strong reduction fronts? I uh, I don't think that's Jefferson and Collier, uh, maybe Woods. Also, how often do you think they're going to play heavier techniques with the big end? Matty? Uh, so it's not Collier based on his showing against the Titans last year where he like looked like he'd forgotten how to mirror step, which is what that is describing. Um, it's I don't think it's Jefferson either, though he could probably do it in a pinch. 
it definitely Woods because we, we saw Woods do that and Griffin's already kind of spoke about that, but we saw Woods do that last year, similar to how Red Bryant did it. Now, it could also be Puna Ford. Puna Ford brings a kind of different style to it. They've obviously lost Rasheem Green, who did that a bit. I think, like I said, Jefferson could do it in a pinch. Uh, Shelby Harris could definitely do it. But really, the main guy will be Woods. It's just then, if we're talking weak or strong reduction fronts, that's kind of early down um, deals. Uh, I mean, that's why they, they're they're an odd team now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but so, so so it's most likely to be Woods. But if, if they're wanting to get a bit more pass rush out on the field, I think Harris can do it. Jefferson I'm less confident about but because he's just lighter. But he can still do it, and, and Puna can do it. And if you've got those three out on the field, you should be getting enough pass rush if you're really intent on playing um, that kind of big on the, like a neutral or even passing down. Yeah. Um, yeah, like they're, it's kind of, it's it's like we've already said, it's because the, the whole like reduced weak strong thing, that's been kind of part of their, their even front structure, right? They're still, they want to close off the, they want to close off the B gap bubble while still having like even, even front organization for their whole team. But now that they're, they've been an odd front team two years running, now they're entering their third year. It's kind of, it's already taken care of. But again, it's like they're not going to really be true two gapping from a four technique over the tackle. Um, I think, I mean, again, it might, might be a game to game adjustment where they might put a guy in a true four and be like, you have to, you know, hands on the armpit, true two gap technique, you know, um, read, react stuff. Um, but it's just going to be very, it's, it's going to be like very circumstantial when they are playing even front base. It's going to be when they're playing teams where they get a lot of gap scheme and they're not reducing, they're playing like you have a legit B gap bubble now. And the big end is playing five technique, one gap, you know, on the outside shoulder of the tackle and that's Al Woods, and they're doing that to kill C gap problems, right? Or they're, or it's, or they're putting it, they're reducing, um, they're reducing to the nose side, and when they're expecting a lot of like counter weak ball on the boundary, and they want the weekend to be in a four technique so that he can deal with this, the C gap problems there without a tight end of that side, which is something like Lafleur likes to do. I think he likes to run stuff to the boundary to the non tight end side, and then. Um, Shanahan will do some like counter week and stuff like that. And that's maybe where you'll see a two gapper to the weak side. But um, I know it's hard to, I'm not, I can't even visualize it myself right now. I'm just spitting out well, words. But Well, s- something that I think they're going to do more commonly is that um, big ends playing in an even front from quite wide. Um, and rather than having him line up in the B gap, having him, and this links Scooby to your the second question you asked about playing heavier techniques with the big end, having him crash down into the tackle. There's a really cool play from last year on third and seven versus the Rams where the Rams tried to run at the matching Ugo Amadi side uh, what after creating an extra D gap, and essentially what happened was our Woods. Um, Oh no, it wasn't Alwoods. It was it was Rasheen Green playing end, but then he smacked down to the tackle, which bought the time for everyone to um 
to fit off that because Ugo wasn't in the fit and they were having to cheat the numbers back. Now, what was also cool about that was Al Woods lined up basically at one tech and then smacked the guard back, like played through the guard into the B gap. So the B gap just disappeared because it was getting crushed from the C gap and it was getting crushed from the A gap. And so the, the Rams tried to run it and they had to bounce out into a cornerback force um, and then Green disengaging. So in terms of the heavier techniques thing and using the big end in right. situations like putting maybe in a, in a stress situation where you you'd want the three tech to the other side, maybe putting the big end to the nickel um, in, in even fronts, that is something where you could play heavier and work work stuff out to free up the match a bit more. Um, that would be a cool cool thing to This is a great play. I've got an article coming on that. So. And and they've got, like your article will show, they've got the personnel to do it. So they can kind of be whatever front they want to be. Um, and They're then also, hybrid. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, and then Maddie, you, you mentioned behind the scenes, um, Seattle dipping back into some uh, fronts of your, um, the tank front. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts there? Do you want to insert speaking of what fronts they might play this year? Well, that's one way you, you just, you get a reliable edge, right? Um, and you can, if you want, you could put a big end out wide and crush still. Um, but also you can but, play, you can play heavy, but, really heavy in the middle and, and buy time. For but the- real quick to find the tank front though, because that's Seattle term at which they may not be calling oh. that anymore. Well, it's an overfront where you have a. Uh, well, S- Seattle traditionally would have had a two I and a, a three technique, so like over G. Um, the heavy and, two I, heavy three, right? And the, yeah, um, very heavy. Uh, and that was they'd twin that with cover three bars. Um, so Cam would come down into the strong hook. Uh, he'd technically have the A gap fit. Um, but because of the heavy techniques, he'd be able to play from a bit more depth in this strong hook. And they'd still ask him to, if it was two by two, match the second seam. And so to buy him the time to do all of this, you play heavy up front. Um, and the, it became their, like, in the Illusion of Boom days, it was like their, if a team went, started going shotgun a lot, like the Packers, uh, the Broncos in the Super Bowl, they just ran this stuff. And Cam was like a death backer coming in. It was actually quite modern because they played it from like too high presentation, basically. Right. Um, it, especially it, if it was a it, passing it allowed, down. Yeah. I mean, it, it cheated math. Like Cam Chancellor was a pass-first player with a run fit, and that heavy technique protected him. Because um, I think he was – because it was it's over, and he's passing strength. I mean, he was a A-gap player, basically. Yeah, and the three technique was protecting him and well. And what makes that particularly interesting is that when you mentioned that, you know, we went back and watched a little bit of Sean Desai in Chicago. He was playing in essentially the same front, and he was doing it because his his, his team's best trait after all the injuries they had ended up being their edge rush, and they didn't even have Khalil Mack, but it was Robert Quinn and some other guy that looked promising. So the tank front allowed them to stay in too high, at least often enough, and still accentuate their edge rushers, let them have hard edges, not hard edges, wide edges. But allowed them to the interior was able to hold up just well enough that they could play just enough too high so that when they spun down into one high, 
it kept up the pretense to where it was still a, a, a potential possibility, not a foregone conclusion to the offense that they're going to spin down. And it allowed to ensure that their edge rushers were constantly going. So it was just this systemic, like, you know, stirring the cauldron, like trying to make it all fit together. And granted, it didn't work that well because the Bears were not a good defense last year. But that wasn't Sean DeSai's fault. They, they were just, they were like skeleton crew out there at times. But you can see his ideas now, and you can totally see how that translates to Seattle. And Pete Carroll sees and, it. I was like, oh shit, we And do see, that. Seattle we do that already kind of did that like last last season against the Packers. Now, it wasn't always a two eye deal, but if you look at the Packers game when Seattle's playing Cleo coverage, so Adams is in the hard quarter and he is in the run fit. Seattle, when they had the three-tech to his side against the Packers in an even front, they played that three-tech super heavy, and that would have put Adams in the A-gap, right? But he's fitting it from too high. So what Seattle actually did um, was they they pirate-stunted their three-tech into the A-gap, and then they had their end go from the, the C into the B, or from the D into the B, and bought time for Adams to just fit off it. Brooks was able to fall back and then Adams was there to join the hit as well. And Wagner just played the front side and gap. Did it correct me if I'm wrong, but it also allowed the boundary corner to have to be the force player, right? No. there's just oh. the quarter side. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was just it was just basically getting into kind of bare spacing post snap. With right. Brooks being the the last edge player, but he'd start off the ball. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. there'll be clips of that in Cleo Part Three, which is the how to beat Cleo and how not to beat Cleo section, which is run fit, which people thought they could beat it and they couldn't because of the stuff Seattle did up front. Right. Good stuff. Do you guys like defensive backs? You like secondary play? I do. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we got questions about that. Let's do We've it. got questions wow. about that. Let's get into it. All right. So this uh, this comes from Hawk Astrologer again. Uh, how many interceptions do you predict from the Seahawks DBs this year? What would indicate success in this production category for each of you, Griff? Um. I mean, I don't know, man. It's. I don't think I don't know actually what the Rams numbers were. Um, I do. Okay, you go ahead and lead then. They had nineteen interceptions, which ranked third. Damn. Does that Darn. not fit your narrative? It doesn't fit. It, uh, well, where I was going with that is Seattle's mo last year was preventing a pass attempts, and part of like that scheme is doesn't invite a lot of throws downfield. Um, depending on where those interceptions occurred, maybe they're like, like tip balls over the middle. I don't know, just deflections and stuff, mm. but like uh one-on-one situations. I mean, even if, even when they went, were targeted one-on-one and they defended them well on the perimeter, they didn't always have the length to really come down with interceptions. Like that's one thing with DJ Reed, as good as he was, he wasn't going to get you a lot of interceptions probably in contested situations. Um, Trey Brown probably isn't. He's going to have to get his jumping routes when he's playing like a cloud corner or something, you know. Um, so I don't, I don't really know how many interceptions there are to be had, but they definitely have to force turnovers. Hopefully, an improved pass ah, rush, well, more turn, man coverage, turnovers. Eh, that's an interesting one because 
I wrote in December 2021, the 2021 Seahawks are not generating turnovers. They actually finished with the least turnovers in the league with 13. Right. Uh, the most was 30. Now, turnovers are somewhat random, but like Griffin says, the pass rush is big. Um, and Seattle wasn't, they were, they weren't, they were dropping deep. They weren't really in positions to take the ball away. They didn't have necessarily the players. I would say a Kobe Bryant he takes really aggressive angles to the football. Like he understands roots and he undercuts them and he will play the ball. So if he's playing, might go up, but their turnover, like Pete Carroll always stresses. It's all about the ball. He's always about trying to take the ball away on defense and they just didn't do it well last year. So, I mean, I mean how many inceptions to predict is difficult, but in theory they should have more because I mean, it's hard many... not to have more, but. How many interceptions come on back targets, running targets to the running back? And le- right. so, like, they led the league in targets to the running back, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And then they also, in terms of most targets, and they also led the league in fewest pass attempts, 10 yards or greater downfield by percent of total snaps. Yeah. So, and that's both good and a bad thing. It's c- complicated, both Messy. those numbers. But um, it's, yeah, so... It's 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 tough how to answer that question. Let's just say I want more interceptions. Yeah. So um, what would indicate success? Well, at least I mean top half. You know, top ten again. Like this, the who came tenth last year? The Titans are twenty five. Wow. And that number does so they, fluctuate. So they but... have to double their turnover turnovers. Essentially, well, well that so last year they, they even had... cracked top 10. Yeah, so I don't know if they're gonna get 25. Last year they had seven interceptions, which is the least in the league. So they they, they actually need to basically almost quadruple, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'd say like they're probably their ceiling. Might be like fifteen to eighteen. You said Which, thirteen total turnovers, not interceptions, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So makes... you think their ceiling's eighteen tie, which is like interceptions. Yeah, which last year would have placed um oh well eighteen interceptions would have placed fifth. No, sixth, sorry, sixth in the league. So that's not bad. <laughs> Like it just it depends on obviously the cornerbacks, right? Also, who is going to be the cornerbacks, and how much is that position going to fluctuate? How much of that is going to be you know different guys rotating in? Um, are they going to land on you know a pair of outside starters that are going to stick for the for the majority of the year, or is it going to be kind of a revolving door? Mm. That's that's the other thing. So. I would say that's like max, 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 like absolute ceiling. Um, you said they had seven last year. Yes, and that was with Reed playing great coverage. Um, yeah, it's honestly, what, they it's what Griff spoke about the whole so many throws to the back, and yeah. then not not the not very risky throws because teams didn't need to, but also Seattle was taking away. That's a messy element. But, yeah. Um, yeah. 
yeah i'd say probably like i don't know if i had to guess what they end up doing probably like 13 like i i can't imagine that they do just like seven or below that again like right hopefully not they can't be worse than that right (laughs) like right that that, that feels like that feels really bad that's like really bad yeah but yeah yeah especially when it's your whole mo as a head coach is to take the ball away and protect the football like come on now yeah 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 all right um do we want to move on yeah all right uh which coverages this comes from scott v myers again uh which coverages do you think uh the seahawks will run the most what differences will fans notice maddie oh uh well they ran the the depending on who you listen to the fifth most middle field open or the fourth most uh, so they ran a lot of middle field open coverage last year. I'd expect their most run coverage to be a quarter, quarter, half variant um, this year based on how offenses are trending. Um, that doesn't mean cover three will die because you have to be able to play cover three. Um, you have to be able to get plus one in the box at certain times. Same with cover one. Uh, Griff will have some interesting stuff to say on the cover one aspect of this, I think. But my, uh, my opinion is uh, quarter quarter half or half quarter quarter. So and the, fans, the fans won't you will not notice much of a difference. You just might feel like you're seeing more people like too high. Yeah, they're they're not going to run like any more too high than they ran last year. It's going those splits rules will stay the same. It's like within each, within their two high bucket, within their one high bucket, we're just simply going to be seeing some cover three replaced with some cover one. And then some cover two replaced with a combination of cover six and cover four. Um, Carl Scott comes from the team that likes to run for the Vikings, that likes to run quarter, quarter, half cover six. And then obviously Seattle was running a lot of, and Sean Desai has ran a lot of um, half quarter, quarter, which is you're just, you're playing cover two to the opposite side of the field to the passing strength instead of the weak side. Seattle, there's necessity for both for every team. Um, but I think like the biggest difference is that we're going to see more like pure quarters. Sean Desai didn't run a lot of pure quarters last year, but Carl Scott did. So it's like a blending of seeing, we're going to see more half quarter quarter and that will be Desai's deal, uh, which is again, already Seattle's deal, but his thing is, okay, let's just do even more. And then Carl Scott's going to say, we're going to do pure form quarters more. Um, but again, also a little more cover six, which is still quarters family. Um, the the biggest difference i think is just going to be the more nitty-gritty so like in cover three seattle i think they're really aiming to be able to rotate strong again like they did with cam chancellor um and that means flopping jamal adams and quandary Diggs at times so that both either can be the passing strength or passing weakness again you don't want to rotate strong with quandary Diggs um uh on early downs but that's something you can do with Jamal and task him with a run fit on early downs, or you might actually be expecting the run, but still be able to get the, the, the past defense elements that you want, which is essentially you're getting a hook zone, but from depth um, so that you can kind of kill and break your stuff while staying gapped out. Well, an, um, an area to rotate dig strong would be like the trips, right? Like put him down to the, or four strong, Right. Well, for the same reasons that you would want to rotate any safety strong, it's just that you only want to do that in passing situations with Quandre, right? 
Whereas with Jamal, it's just winning back the ability to do that on early downs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like they never, there were times where it, there was there was merit to rotating, showing too high, which Seattle did quite a bit last year, then rotating strong into cover three with Quandre. But it's like there were times where that was warranted on the early downs, so they would only do it on third and 10 or third and seven, right? So we might actually see a pinch of that on first and 10 or second and eight. You know what I'm saying? Like now with... Uh, with uh with jamal or even third and four third and five so that's because i mean what makes jamal special is the versatility and that all coming together just being able to be rotation proof your your whole defense um is kind of what gives you ultimate flexibility not just for cover three but the fire zones and and stuff like that um and how you run fit from quarters as well and run fit from too high all, all, all those things so um I think that'll be one of the, the biggest differences. Now, the other minute difference, you know, double in the detail stuff is when they are playing quarters, are we going to see some legit cover seven man match quarters checks here and there? Mm-hmm. It might be a third down thing. They might have like one base call for it, like just basically mod, right? Just which is kind of the classic base version of cover seven um, where it's just it's essentially quarters as we've known it, but the defenders have the underneath defenders have slightly different rules. They're playing man techniques, more eyes on the on the um, on the receivers, the receiving threats a little more. It's tighter inherently. Is it two um, man? Very very. Don't ask Carl Scott that that he might blow a gasket. Um, but so I, beyond that, we're not going to see any differences. Now it would be cool if they if they trot out like a trips checks cover seven and run, run like stubby you know against trips which is something that um some guys around the league do but again only on third downs um for the most part um but they third have down they have playing with your food anyway right they have the best guy in the nfl to institute it though and carl scott being an alabama assistant so that's that's, that's now that Pru- now that jeremy pruitt's left the giants right indeed because then he would be surely mm-hmm. the first best um Anyway, that, that's that's all I got for that question. I think more cover one, yeah. See more cover one. Mm-hmm. Maddie, anything you want to add? Well, just I mean, Griffin spoke well on this, but like the amount of cover one you're able to play uh, is influenced by you know the fact uh, if Coleman hits, then they can play a lot of cover one. But if he's not all right, then I doubt how much Ugo can play. Um, they kind of need Coleman to hit if they want to play cover one a lot. Also, the pass rush, like the ability to get pressure with, you know, four dudes is very important if you are wanting to play cover one. But they go hand in hand. It's the whole chicken before the egg or whatever the hell. Pass rush or coverage is basically both, which doesn't work for the egg um, or the chicken because it can't be both or can it? I don't know. Just make the omelette and we're good. Yeah, and the thing with an omelette, I don't. I, I, do, you, do you guys have this expression? You can't make an omelet without eggs. You can't you have that make expression? an omelet without breaking some eggs. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I've never heard that one. That's you haven't good. heard that one? No, no, no I've never heard that. We don't have that here. Hmm. All right. So we got a. Go uh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I real quick some trivia for you. I don't know if this is true. My French teacher told me this. The origin for the term omelet, it was some French, like, nobleman, aristocrat, 
whose last name was like Malay and some cook was, I think she was, she was a woman. Apparently she was um, like scrambling eggs or doing something like it was not an omelet. And then she like messed it up or left it alone. All of a sudden, like it formed an omelet and she flipped it over and it was an omelet. And then she's yelling, Oh, Malay, Oh, Malay to this person. I mean, it was omelet, I think it's a hard T. And then that's how the term omelet originated. It was this person exclaiming, oh, so-and-so. And that guy's mm-hmm. name happened to be Malay or Millet. Where are you at with omelets? Because my opinion oh, is... Oh, I love them. Oh, really? You can put anything in them. You can put anything in a sandwich, you know? like Yeah. So <laughs> omelets are like the... Almost are great. Where are you at with omelets, Maddie? I'm not in a good place with them. If I'm making like a quick, uh, eggy dish, I'd go with um, I'd go carbonara, huh. or just scram, or just scramble your eggs. Just scramble them. No, What's see, I'm lazy, so I scramble them. But yeah. scrambling does require patience if you're going to do it properly. But if you're going out to a restaurant, you have the option between an omelet or a scramble. I'll have the ham, egg, and chips. Oh, fries. Sorry. <laughs> so, wait. So, what do they call potato chips? They call them crisps, yeah. right? Yeah, we, we, yeah, we don't need yeah. to get into this. It's fine. Yeah. It's okay. all good. We're, we're all, right. all mates. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, he's about to start the War of 2022, the sequel to the War of 1812. Mm. You always go on about this war. It's the, I just the don't third get in the trilogy. Deal, guys. This war. So <clears throat> we have another question from Shiv, or as Tom Wamsgans would say, Shiv. Uh, <laughs> Pete Carroll comes from the Monty Kiffin too high defense and then pioneered the cover three Seattle defense, the whole league adopted, or so it seemed. So in the wake of Desai's quote that this is still a Pete Carroll defense, what is a Pete Carroll defense? Because he was playing defense very differently at USC and even in earlier NFL gigs. And that's the question. It's a great question from Shiv there. Um, Maddie, I know you have lots of thoughts. One one thing I'll say before you give your answer, Maddie, is that like Shiv alluded to, I mean, he certainly ran a lot of single high stuff at USC, as you'll talk about, Maddie, because I know you've watched a lot. But like, it's important to emphasize that Seattle becoming the cover three team in the NFL, they got there organically. It wasn't Pete working backwards from the conclusion of, I want to be, I want to stay in single high. I want to fit the run and our corners can handle it. And our deep safety can handle anything that they throw at us. It'll be fine. Like they arrived on that very just naturally. And it was what the, it was what necessity demanded. Um, It was what the league demanded at the time in order for them to be a good defense and given their personnel too. And then it cover three persisted because as there was turnover, their remaining players, their best players, Bobby and KJ, they were best at playing hook, dropping into hook zones. If you're going to become something fundamentally different, I mean, sure, but you're, you're paying these guys like a total of like $25 million a year. Do you want them just taking running backs out of the backfield, like lean on your best players. So that means everybody else has to play cover three. So, and they made some technique changes over time, but 
which is where the hidden adaptability was the hidden multiplicity that's been talked about with even though the call is still cover three it's like there's way different things that matter that are much different than when it was Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor and Maxwell and Sherman and all that um, but so what will make it Pete Carroll's defense is that what they're arriving on is is the 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 best um it's 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 the it's the best way that to flow from what they have available to them personnel wise and it's reacting to what is like what is best suited toward defending a lot of the concepts and and also we we'll see their own wrinkles on it that will also matter so um go ahead maddie yeah time and place i'd say like that's that's what his defenses have been it's like the right time, the right place to run this thing. Like it's for the right people. It's all about having as much simplicity as possible, but having enough multiplicity to defend stuff, cause problems for guys. All while the idea of the simplicity is so that your players can play fast. Um, and I, I guess yeah. he chose, uh, yeah. And it's and it's literally just like trying to trying to kind of exploit the kind of best scheme answers at the time for right. like the concepts they're getting like so that's why like the kiffin deal like everyone says it's like you know this whole fourth three under thing but if you like look at a kiffin playbook yeah there's fourth three under in there there's under china which is like a big kiffin call um and there's other cool stuff but really like defenses have so many answers in them each time there's just like certain calls which get like accentuated and gravitated because they're like right. i don't know because they're like the base call or whatever but really for pete it's just about taking the the, the meta you know like, right and 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 we have to remember and, and maddie you have this on good authority a lot what they formed when they formed their cover three stuff that the the even though like people think well it's really Pete carroll's scheme and yes it is but the assistants had lots of autonomy in forming that between Gus Bradley, who's kind of joked on now, but at Bradley, Rocky Seto, um, Ken Norton Jr. I mean, all of them had huge input on the installation and, and the nitty gritty details. Um, so like it was like they had just as much latitude as Desai, Scott Hurt, John Glenn have right now. It's really no different. It's just the current version of it. We uh I mean, Pete Carroll's 70 years old, like scheme doesn't impress him anymore. He's seen just about everything. I mean, I'm sure he watches tape on college programs and all this, the league trends that are happening. Like he's aware of this. Um, and in the, uh, this, when he was doing that, um, when he was doing that podcast with Steve Kerr two years ago in the off season on the onset of COVID, um, Steve Kerr was sharing a story with what, with Pete there on air with him about how, when he was getting into coaching, he was talking about like, well, what do I, you people should listen to the podcast because I'm not representing it well, but um, he was, he was telling the audience this conversation they had with Pete saying, well, what should my offense be? What should my defense be? And Pete was like, none of that matters. Like essentially saying, what's your philosophy? What tone are you setting? Basically all the subjective stuff, all the stuff that's easier said than done, but is probably really the hard part. Think about how many smart football coaches are, there are out there that can't make any noise or stick around because they don't know how to run a team so what will make what will make this a Pete Carroll defense regardless of what they do schematically is that he's setting the stage he's setting the tone 
he is he's allowing everybody to do their thing within his framework of you know subjectivity well stuff that we identify as subjective that's ultimately what will be Pete Carroll's ultimate mark on it is um is how he delegates is is how everyone feels when they come into work and stuff obviously yep. well outsiders. I have no idea what that's like but it seems to be positive and and that's what mm. will be you know I think yeah. the, the reigning Carroll aspect so in uh 2010 Pete Carroll's book win forever as head coach, I set the vision and philosophy, but it is the coordinators and other coaches who are charged with implementing it on the ground with the players every day. You can teach people how to coach football and the nuances of the game. It is no secret after all that I've basically been running the same defense I learned from Monte Kiffin in the 70s, blah, blah, blah. Specific plays aren't what made all those USC victories, and they aren't necessarily what are going to power the Seahawks. Um and so um, perhaps the most powerful weapon in the win forever philosophy is the drive to be cons constantly be looking for ways to improve. That mentality makes a huge difference when I'm looking to hire coaches for my staff. And like Griff said, like the way I understand it is in 2010, that was a coaching staff coming together with ideas. They'd also had a background at USC together. Um, and okay, that is predominantly with a four three kind of structure. They did do some more kind of um well it's not even with a 4-3 structure that's the thing pete's always had a hybrid kind of defense um he, he credits kiffin because i think that's where a lot of like the four down stuff came from and a lot of like his answers to when he's getting uh, like problems like pirate stunts and stuff like that um uh, and the importance of a b-gap bubble and what the bubble allows you to do and then how the players kind of fit off that like you listen to like a Bo Pelini and the stuff he's talking about, like the keys that things give you. But then Pete has also learned from like his time at the 49ers and the hybrid elements of that deal with Cypher. And and then at USC he he started doing bear stuff to defend the spread. Like again, it's just it's just the whole meta thing, but it's more about um it's more about uh you know le letting a coaching staff come together in his philosophy. Um, and, and being on the cutting edge of this is what's the right thing to do now. Like, Gus Bradley came up with all the the indicators and the pattern matching of NFL concepts and the, the cover three match that Seattle was running. Um, now, Seattle didn't fully match because they didn't need to. Um, uh, it also fit the personnel. And then, like, now you've got a blossoming of young coaching staff again like, I don't necessarily think Ken Norton Jr. needs to lose his job, but him doing that and the kind of reluctant way that Pete did it is because there's all these young coaches ready to be on the same page of installing a new defense. Why this one feels slightly different is because the language, um, based on certain things which may or may not have happened, uh, is actually different. Like, it, it seems to be the Fangio tree. But that, if anything, just rams home the point. And I'd love to hear Pete Carroll asked about it, like, this is the first time you've used different language since, well, we've seen a USC 2007 playbook, but I've seen drawings from like 2003, 2002, like and images where the language is all the same. Now, what? when did Pete, um, maybe a Pete with the Patriots use slightly different language? I don't know. But to me, the fact that he's changed his whole language over is pretty, it's a pretty big deal mm -hmm. because that's been his whole thing. And it, he, he always had the roots to Kiffin. Now, this season, it seems like he's not doing that. That seems like a big deal, but then it also just reinforces that 
it's never really been about X's nose with him, even though he's very good at them. Like you have to be, you're a coach, right? But mm-hmm. it's more about the overarching philosophy, having everyone on the same page um, and sort of making things, whatever you do, make it as simple as possible, which is very difficult to do um, and right. make players be able to play fast, um, make plays, take shots. Um, mm. And that, that, yeah, I, I don't know. Um I want to hear Pete Carroll asked about the Kiffin thing. Yeah, and then well, well, one more thing we should remember though is because some people are there's obviously a lot of talk like oh Pete's finally embracing modern football and stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's just remember like this is not the first time the league has been too high. It's it's what the the odds were. It's what the zeros were. It's Peyton Manning was, you know. Well, go for, go, for, two, go further back. Teams. Go to when Pete was. With- the Jets and they drafted Aaron Glenn, small corner, and they were playing like quarter, quarter, half, like on all, like most of their plays when right. they didn't need to have so a it's, extra it's just all, It's all cyclical and we're all being prisoners of the moment right now. And also, the same thing is already happening to the Fangio and Staley offshoot branch tree that happened to Pete Carroll's tree. They're, they're, the assistants are seeding throughout the league and then they don't, the staffs are subsequently stretched thin. And they don't have the talent. And a lot of those teams right now are not doing any better than the than Pete Carroll's teams did or his Pete Carroll's assistance teams did if they didn't have the talent. Right mm-hmm. now, like the, the the best Fangio teams right now are not ran by Fangio or Staley. They're they're ran by uh Raheem Morris for the Rams because he inherited Staley's personnel. Now Raheem did good stuff for sure, but um, you know, he had he had elite talent. Um, Staley's Chargers were not that good this year because they don't have the talent. The same reason why right. all these others. So it's just the principle of you need. It's all about the people ultimately, and I think that's kind of Pete Carroll's realized that it's scheme is great, but you need people, and that's why Pete's been shaking things up. And yeah, it's easier said than done to to g- simply get back to being a top five defense. Um, but even when they've fallen, they haven't fallen that far. We have to remember, like they've only been below average in terms of how often is the offense scoring on you one time um, since 20, 2011. So two times during Pete Carroll's entire Seahawks tenure have they been a below average defense in terms of points per drive. So it's just like, let's remember to put it all in perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like you guys said, you know, the, the Pete Carroll defense seems more like it's just it's philosophical rather than anything schematic, uh, because obviously the meta is going to change. You know, there's like you said, Maddie, kind of time and place, really, with everything. You know, you, you talk about the different spaces that Pete has found himself in, whether it's the college game, whether it's, you know, 90s NFL, like that's different. It's just it's just a different time. That's just different sport, basically. Um, and so, you know, it, it just that's always going to change. But the philosophy is always going to be the same, which is, like you said, play fast, create turnovers, all that. Well, sure. when when Desai said this is a peak cow defense as well, like this is still a peak cow defense. I feel like that's more um, was well, one not wanting to undermine Pete, but two, it's I think. Pete has initiated this change and he's probably okayed like all of the stuff they're doing. And, you know, he's like, this is a good idea and probably had suggestions and the final say on certain things. Right. I would, 
I would think so. And you'd part hope of why, so because he's had so right. much experience of all of this and those. And the the reason yeah. why these hires were, were seemed like no brainer hires to make is because they don't have a lot of work to do in terms of. It's the direction they were going. It's where they're headed. It was just again, it was further proof that it's organic and they're getting really like a star studded assistant um assistance to to help shape it and mold it. So it just it just makes all the sense in the world. It's gonna be Pete Carroll's defense, but it's also gonna be Clint Hurts and it's also gonna be the size and Scott's and so it's like let's it's a team it's a team game, right? Um yeah. Yeah, so you know, obviously they wanted to get guys in there that were a little more familiar with what they were eventually going to be teaching, which you know what they were already heading towards. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh you know plays out this year, and we'll probably get you know a little more tidbits of information here and there over the coming weeks, and you know we'll yeah. uh, we'll have a better idea of what's going on. All right, so we have uh, one last question from patty what kind of recon do you need from practice uh i need a high focal lens camera Mm. i need that zoomed in Mm -hmm. on paper Mm. i need nice resolution pictures of Mm. paper Mm. But what also, is on the paper? Um, well, we don't mm. know. Um, mm. we there's no way you could know that. Uh, also, you know, and Griffin can speak to this, but uh, how much tight splits they're using on offense, how much under center, how much uh, under center running. I don't want to steal all of Griffin's stuff. No, Griff, you, you can. Well, I'll, I'll talk defense. Um, defense, how much are they staying in too high for the whole sort of duration of the snap? Uh, how much is one of the safeties uh, sticking to the hash, whereas one of them's like or almost to the hash, like in between the hash numbers? How much is one turning and their body and getting over the top of the one receiver, basically? Um, is Are the edge rushes sticking to one side of the field, or are they running to the short side each time? Um, that's useful. So if, if you're going to training camp, please, you know, at me. Um, at the podcast, I'll, uh, one like glaring, th- and then yeah, offense. The two glaring things to look for is: are are we seeing a predominance of dig routes under center or gun? Um, and who's running them is another interesting question. I think Tyler Lockett and Noah Fant make the most sense, like right off the bat. But you know, all the tight ends are going to have to be running them. Um, we know we're going to see Metcalf in a pinch because he was the main one running them last year for like under center play action. But then is is Eskridge getting involved downfield? Unfortunately, he's been he's been nicked up so far, which is not good. But if if he can be an actual option downfield for them, especially in the intermediate, then that that just gives them this sort of like uh, ambidextrousness for when they want to run certain concepts because it's it's playing him and lock it off of each other and stuff. Also, the single most the biggest indicator that you might see from training camp and offense is are they running from shotgun a lot? Because if they're doing that, that means that from that follows like whole stream of things as far as what the overall picture will be like. If they aren't, it means things are going to be looking very different, at least in intention on paper results are a whole different question. Yep. Um, 
But yeah, gun running, yes or no? How Figure much? Out, yes or no? Right. Yeah. How much? Also, be sure to let us know who's in the best shape of their life. Right. Who's in the best shape of their life? Apart from us three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely not in the best shape of my life. Oh, I'm definitely. I'm, I'm definitely getting cut heading into I've, camp. Yeah. I've been, I've been in better yeah. shape. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely get cut. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone, for your questions. I hope we have answered them well. Be sure to check out part one if you didn't. If you're thinking, why hasn't my question been answered? Well, it's because it was an offensive question, not uh, actually offensive, but it was on the offense, and so we did that last week. Please do like, rate um, us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We're now on Stitcher, uh, Spreaker, Spotify, um, you know, give us five stars, please, and write something nice if you really can. And um, subscribe to my YouTube where this is also posted, and you can see our ugly mugs. Follow the podcast. That's Seattle Overload. We're not going to do the vow thing again, but follow all of us, and um, we we appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs>